After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. Now it's easy in meditation and in this training to set a goal and then use it to evaluate yourself. And of course, to steady the mind or be able to concentrate a bit more on the breath through training becomes possible. But it has to happen in an organic way and not through your striving. It comes more when you simply are willing to pay attention to what's happening. And sometimes it will be the breath, but sometimes what you notice as you sit quietly is you're sleepy, right? Or you notice that you're concerned or worried about something. Or you're restless. All of those kind of things. And those are absolutely natural. The image or story that may be helpful is of uh, Professor George Shaler, who was one of the most important primate biologists ever. He was the mentor to um, Diane Fossey, whose story was told in that movie, Gorillas in the Mist, um, played by Sigourney Weaver. And Dr. Shaler came back from one of his trips in Africa and made a presentation to a huge gathering conference of um, biologists, field biologists, and talked about the gorillas, how they lived together, what was the role of the young males, the big silverback male's relationship to the to the females, um, who raised the children, the aunties and the you know the mothers, and all of the kind of family structure and community. And people raised their hand. And they said, "Wait a second, Doctor Shaler, we've been studying these creatures for a couple of hundred years with our kind of European scientific view, um, and nobody ever had this level of information." How did you learn so much about the gorillas? And he said, it was simple. I didn't carry a gun. The previous generations of biologists had all kind of been frightened by these giant creatures, and so they went in carrying elephant guns, basically. Now, if you were a gorilla, and you saw some guy coming in, you know, carrying a big gun, I mean, how would you feel, right? 
So they couldn't really get very close to them. But Shaler, because he didn't carry a gun, had to come in very respectfully and slowly, eyes downcast. There turns out, the primate biologist at uh, San Francisco Zoo taught me about, about how you approach gorillas. You kind of sidle in, keep your eyes down. If you want their attention, you clear your throat <clears throat> like that. And then they'll look up, you wanted something. I mean, it was very cool. We went to visit the gorillas in the zoo and her, 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 her gorilla people. But anyway, Shaler had to, had to um, approach very slowly and carefully and respectfully. And the gorillas could feel it. And after a while, when they realized he wasn't going to harm them, they let him just sit there in the middle and he could take his notes and observe everything that they were doing um, and learn so much because he wasn't trying to do anything. He simply became the caring witness of their life. And in the same way, mindfulness, you start with the breath, um, it is really an invitation to approach your own body and mind um, as a caring witness, which is partly why we're talking about it as a loving awareness. And then you notice, oh, sleepiness, that's not a failure. It's just your body's tired. You know, have you been running yourself around a lot or not sleeping much or, you know, whatever there are causes for it, but you notice it or restlessness, or anxiety, or whatever, you simply sit in the middle of it all and allow yourself to be present for this. Um, and then the beautiful thing is you can't do it wrong because there's not something that's supposed to be happening. What is happening is the subject of your attention in the way that Chaler gave attention to see what was happening there among the Gorillas, your gorilla nature displays itself. So I was leading a seminar over at Berkeley, at the Berkeley Law School, um, on mindfulness and the law. One part of it, there'd been a whole big gathering of uh, lawyers and judges and law professors and, and so forth. And one guy who was a judge said he'd been a meditator for quite a while. And when he was appointed to, you know, to sit on the bench, he said, hmm, sit on the bench. I know how to sit. So it sort of, he connected the two. And this is his instructions to the juries. I want you to listen to what will be presented in this courtroom with total attention. You may find it helpful to sit in a posture that embodies dignity and presence and to stay in touch with the feeling of your breath coming in and out as you listen to the evidence. Be aware of the tendency of mind to jump to conclusions before all the evidence has been presented and the final arguments made. As best you can, suspend judgment and simply witness with your full being what's being presented in the courtroom moment to moment. If you find your attention wandering, you can always bring it back to your breathing and to what you're hearing over and over again if necessary. When the presentation of evidence is complete, it will then be your turn to deliberate, deliberate together as a jury and come to a decision, but not before. That's the kind of jury I want when they uh, call me into court, you know. But you can hear the spirit of mindfulness, which is very different than the way we tend to approach other things in our life. And the invitation of it is really to learn to discover and there's a kind of freedom in it. Now, 
we go on, it turns out that mindfulness has to be married to compassion and loving kindness. Um, And when we first taught these practices that my colleagues like Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, and so forth, we all had our training in the 1960s and early 70s in in, um, Southeast Asia and India. When we first taught these, um, because I'd trained in a ascetic forest monastery and there was a kind of ethos of um, a kind of warrior quality of training. Sit up all night, don't move, you know, really be mindful. Um, it didn't work very well here um, because it got conflated with the American values of striving and ambition and people were, okay, I want to get enlightened, you know, and the more they want to get enlightened, the tighter they became. Or um, they saw it um, as a way of, I've got to be on my breath or I've got to pay attention. And then they judged themselves all the time. It amplified their self-criticism. Not only am I not good outside, but I'm also a failure as a meditator. And, you know, and I can see all this trouble in my mind and it amplified all of that stuff. And there was this famous dialogue we had with the Dalai Lama in the late 80s asking about how you deal with self-hatred in Tibet in, in, in training. And he was completely confused. There is no word for self-hatred in Tibetan. What do you mean self-hatred? It took a long time for the translator to kind of get through to him. Finally, he looked up. He said, mm, but this is a mistake. Why would anyone do this? And he said, oh, no. how many of you, he asked in our group, have had experiences of self-hatred and lots of self-criticism, self-judgment? Almost all the teachers' hands went up that were in this circle of teachers. He said, oh, okay, I see. You have new problems here. He said, we have lots of new problems, right? Mm. So, um, in fact, from the beginning in Buddhist psychology, compassion and awareness are woven together. Because in order to be present for experience, there has to be some element of kindness. Otherwise, you're judging it. You know, this is good, that's not, I want more of this, I want less of that. But if you bring them together as loving awareness, um, then you're able to be present without manipulating or or, uh, being in conflict with the experience the way that it is. And that gives you both more understanding and also becomes the ground for, as you'll see later, for making healthier changes. <clears throat> and the studies of people like Antoine Lutz and Richie Davidson and show that with very simple training, um, people can have much greater access to compassion. Like that doctor I told you about at Stanford, or this letter, if I can find it. Let me see. Dear Jack, I just want to express how grateful I am now to be aware of you. I found you through Duncan Trussell's podcast and little by little the ideas of having compassion for yourself kept inching their way to what I guess is my heart. You've soothed me in darker days and given me a glimpse into a more loving reality for myself. Tonight, I finally gave in and tried meditating. I decided after hearing you speak through my phone for months and months, I would finally give in and just sit with myself for a while. I'm not sure I've ever cried tears of joy like that in the 21 years I've lived so far. And so this is a young man. Um, 
um, for the first time I stopped and really held my anger that I latched onto, my hatred, my anxiety, pain, and everything else I criticized myself about with softness and compassion, without judgment. And all of a sudden, I felt like I really could be loving to myself in the same way that I want to love others. I just finally got some relief with what I felt inside and want you to know that I love you for it. Thank you very much. You know, it doesn't take that much sometimes, but it does take an invitation and a direction of this is what's possible. So when people come to see us, those half or three-quarters of you that are therapists or healers, just sort of the average in Marin County anyway, um, (laughs) they carry their measure of human pain, their anxiety, their confusion. And the big question is, how do they touch it? With judgment, with fear, with overwhelm, with trying to get rid of it in some way? Or is there another way to be present for this story for you. This is from an acquaintance who's a teacher and a poet named Oriah Mountain Dreamer. And she was leading a kind of New Age meditation seminar up in Canada. At the end of a very long day, a small, thin woman in an oversized parka introduced herself as Isabel. Can I do this meditation on my own, she asked. Yes, I'm sure you can, although many people find it easier to establish a meditation practice with the help of a group. It's just hard to keep the discipline going on your own. But what will it give me? What will I get if I do this every day? Her tone took on a whining quality, and I felt my irritation rise as she continued. How fast will it work? Will I feel a difference after a week? How will I know it's working? This was exactly the kind of thing I detested. The quest for the quick fix, the guaranteed outcome, the simple answer, do this and you get that. Anyway, my two young boys were waiting for me and I just wanted to get home. So I took a deep breath, looked directly at Isabel and set my knapsack down on the floor. I tried to slow down my words thinking that maybe if I spoke slower, I would feel more patient. Well, I said, Meditation is more a process than a goal-oriented activity. It can help you become more aware of what's going on within and around you, and this can help reduce stress. My best advice is to try it and just be patient with yourself. Of course, we're always teaching people what we need to learn in ourselves, but anyway. I picked up my bag and started to button my coat. I really did have to leave, and I wanted to get out of there while I was feeling virtuous for not snapping her head off. But as I started to move away, Isabel suddenly reached out and grabbed my arm with surprising strength. But what I want to know, she said, her voice rising in a crescendo that bordered on real panic, is, will it help me find God? If I meditate, will I have an experience of something or someone out there listening, somebody really with me? A wave of desperation swept out from her through me, and I was surprised to find my eyes filled with tears. This woman wasn't looking for an easy answer or a guaranteed formula because she was lazy. She didn't want a simple plan because she was unable or unwilling to think critically about what would work. She wanted something she knew would work and work quickly because she was hanging on by her fingernails 
She wanted something that would work in a week because she was afraid that she simply wasn't going to make it through months or years. I put my hand gently over Isabel's, where it gripped my arm. It's okay, Isabel. We all feel desperate at times, I said. Nobody does it by themselves. We all need help. Her hand relaxed a little beneath mine, and she started to cry, and we talked a while longer. There is no them out there. It's only us. When I left, I did not leave one of them. I said goodbye to one of us, a human being doing the best she can, searching for the home for which all human hearts long. And so, the spirit of Buddhist psychology is to approach our human life with a fundamental compassion. Because everybody struggles. We are all in Isabel's place at some time or other. And so to, to see the beauty of a human being and also to see the difficulty in their life as in all lives gives us a different kind of connection and an entirely different way to hold it. And it turns out, equally importantly, that it's not just personal, but it's collective. As we can see, no amount of outer development, nanotechnology and computers, the whole world wide web, space technology, biotechnology, I mean, extraordinary things. The whole library of, great library of Alexandria in my pocket, you know, along with a lot of bad YouTubes. But anyway, um, none of that outer technology, however cool it is, is going to stop continuing warfare, continuing racism, continuing environmental destruction, continuing tribalism, and all of these things. Those spring from the human heart. And we're now at the point where the enormous outer developments have to be matched by inner development of humanity. As the chairman of a previous generation of Joint Chiefs of Staff said, we are a nation of nuclear giants and ethical infants. And so there's, it's the training that you do in your own meditation or your own inner practice or that you invite others to do is not just personal for them or their families, but is also profoundly political. And here we have these huge fires that are happening, but we don't just have these fires. Um, we also have tremendous upheaval in our body politic and in our social contracts. And, you know, whether it's healthcare or immigration or foreign policy, oh yeah, let's nuke North Korea. That would be a real, you know, interesting thing to do to stop them from having nuclear weapons somehow. I don't know, when kids are in kindergarten, you know, and they start hitting each other with blocks, you say, use your words, right? Could we, like, maybe bring that up a little bit to the <laughs> world leader level? Um, and, of course, as um, the wise commentators on the political world will say, um, that... Um, H.L. Mencken, who was a great commentator, said the whole aim of politics is to frighten you um, and therefore gain, you know, your support. And we can feel how there is a kind of movement, um, you know, terrorism and, you know, this and that, all the kinds of things that are trying to frighten us. Um, 
And the point of mindfulness practice is to not let the outer suffering and terror and so forth colonize your heart because it doesn't have to. And to not buy in in some way to uh, what, having just come back from China, I would have to say here, is our is the propaganda, you know. There's another way to express it, and this comes from James Baldwin, who writes, I imagine one of the reasons that people cling to their hate and ignorance so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And human life is insecure. Security is a superstition. You know, it's just not. Um, as Helen Keller said, life's either a daring adventure or nothing. But when we get fed um, stories of <clears throat> terror and fear and all the things like that, um, married to our own lack of inner stability and all the kind of outer changes. Are we going to lose our jobs? Are we going to lose our power? Are we going to lose, you know, or our community is going to be taken over by somebody else? All the kind of fears that, that get stirred up. Um, a lot of what happens in the society then gets projected on others. So we have the enemy du jour. We had the communists, you know, or the socialists. We had, um, you know, long ago it was the, the, the Germans and the Japanese or whatever and generations back. Then it's, you know, the immigrants or the Muslims or the gays and so forth. And now I think Russia is coming back as a kind of favored enemy and the military loves that because terrorism you don't really need aircraft carriers for. But Russia, now there's an enemy you can kind of get behind and, and, and have huge, you know, need for armaments and things like that. Um, and what Baldwin is saying is that, you know, if we can't tolerate the reality that life is uncertain and find what's called the wisdom of insecurity, if we can't find a steadiness in ourselves, then we not only project it on others, but we create a social construct of fear. So there's something deeply political um, as well as personally transformative in learning and undertaking these practices. So how do we do this? The very first mindfulness and loving awareness practices are trainings in non-harming. And one sets an inner intention to not bring harm to other beings, reminded that this is possible for us as a way to live. Um, and that includes ourself. Um, so there are practices of gratitude. There are practices of reverence for life. May I meet each being with respect. And when you take a vow or when you recite this or you undertake this as part of my mindfulness and compassionate training, 
compassion training, that I will be compassionate to others and myself because human life is hard. It changes everything. In the, in the trainings I had in this monastery, you didn't want to hurt even the littlest creatures. And your whole consciousness changed because you could feel the web of life. Poem from Lloyd Reynolds, who was the greatest American calligrapher. He was a teacher of um, Steve Jobs, um, kind of that fantastic aesthetic. He writes, a bug crawls over the paper. Leave him be. We need all the readers we can get, right? (laughs) And there's just something in it about a reverence for life that is the beginning of the training in compassion, of not harming. Basically, it's hard to sit and meditate after a day of killing and stealing. It just doesn't work. It's rather upsetting to the heart and the psyche. So you say, if you want to learn how to be wise and present, first step is attention to not harm yourself and not harm others. And the not harming yourself is equally important because I get people, you know, who are using, who are cutting, who are doing all kinds of self-destructive things um, because that's the only way they can tolerate their pain, basically, you know. And so it's not judging, but rather it becomes an invitation in working with people. Does this lead to happiness or to suffering? What would the wisest and most caring figure want for you as a teenager, as a, you know, as a, as a human being? And all of it underlying is to hold the vulnerability, the hurt, the pains, the confusion and compassion and not harming. And the beautiful thing is that compassion is natural and it can be strengthened. Um, But it's there in us. And you know the studies from infant studies at Yale to studies of rats at um, University of Chicago where if there's a, a rat trapped in a, in a very tight cage and can't get out and there's a free-roaming rat and they give it, um, you know, some chocolate chips, favorite of rats, um, and there's a lever that the rat can learn to, to press to release the squealing rat that's uncomfortable, that when they find out they can do it, they always do it. And they save chocolate chips for them. I mean, if rats can do it, come on. You know, and my favorite kindergarten teacher, who's at Cascade Canyon in Fairfax, one of the Peggy, one of the kind of world's great kindergarten teachers, during this build-up to the Iraq War, um, there were, for whatever reason, some um, <clears throat> military planes, um, transport planes, that were flying out of the East Bay and coming low over Marin. And the kids were out on the playground and they were really scared because they're noisier than normal planes and they were clearly like army planes or air force planes or military planes. They came running in and they said, Peggy, what is this? And she said, well, um, you've heard there might be a war in Iraq. And of course, little kids pay attention to this, even five-year-olds, because it's on the TV and their parents are talking about it and they knew. And she said, Peggy, what's on those planes? Are there bombs? Maybe. Are there guns on those places? Maybe. Soldiers? Maybe. Um, All kinds of weapons. And then one of the kids said, well, um, are there kids like us in Iraq? 
And Peggy said, yes, there are. And then said, well, they must not know that. They wouldn't bring bombs and guns to hurt children like us. We have to let them know. And so all the kids went out on the playground at the next break, and they got that kind of butcher paper, and they made the huge sign, how do you spell Iraq, Peggy, I-R-A-Q? And then a big picture of a kid, a child, you know, 15 feet, um, so that it was big enough that the pilots could see it from the air, so that they would know that there were children there and they wouldn't hurt them. And this is born in us, to be caring beings for one another when we're not so frightened. And what happens is, you know, and it's there in the mirror neurons where we, where we resonate with what's happening to another near us, the um, Rizalati's study that goes back decades. But the beautiful thing is that this can be awakened through a systematic practice. So I, I think what we'll do is do a little compassion practice and then take a stretch and bathroom break. Does that sound okay? <clears throat> I guess I'll tell you one more story, one of the ones that I tell very often. Um, I was leading a um, teaching on compassion with Pema Chodron, who's a wonderful Western Tibetan nun in the city. And it was a big evening. We had two or 3,000 people um, come. And after teaching about compassion, took questions, and a woman stood up, a young woman, very shaky and uh, difficult time for her because her partner had just committed suicide 10 days before. Um, And so she was shaky and vulnerable and sad and confused. And suicide is a really confusing thing for people because there is grief, But there's also guilt, should I have done something different, you know, and there's anger, how could they, Um, you know, and loss and all these different complex emotions that come up that are profound. And so Pema had her stop and just feel her breath and hold all of that with a deep compassion. It was quite beautiful. And then I felt how alone she was. So I asked, how many other people in that room um, had experienced the death by suicide of a family member or someone they were very close to? And I don't know, maybe 200 people raised their hands or stood up, 8% or something like that. And I said, let's just pause. I want you to turn your attention to this young woman And then I said to her, I want you to look around at all these people who've experienced what you're experiencing. And in that moment, it's as if the room turned into some great temple. There was silence and there was so much compassion and love and um, 
tenderness for the shared suffering of their lives, um, that it was not only palpable for her, but for all of us who were there as a kind of witness to it. And this is really who we are. The compassion itself um, wants to come forth um, to hold the struggles of human incarnation. It's said in the metaphor for Buddhist psychology that to have a free heart or free spirit, there are two wings in which you fly. One is the wing of wisdom or understanding that sees things clearly. And the other is the wing of loving kindness or compassion that holds it all with tenderness. So now, um, let your eyes close gently and you're ready. And it'll be 10 minutes or so. And because um, it's often difficult for people to start with trainings in compassion or loving kindness for themselves, for that issue of self-judgment and self-criticism, you'll hear pedagogically how we start with others and then move it back to ourselves. So let your eyes close gently. And first just come back to the breath and to being seated here in a simple, present way. And feel how you treasure your own life. You know, if you were to step out in the street and a car came rushing around the corner, how you would jump back on the curb because you do value your life and guard it in the face of trouble and sorrows. And feel your heartbeat and the life within you. And now bring to mind someone who you love dearly. Picture them, remember them, think of them. And even if it's a little complicated relationship, this is someone you love. And feel your natural caring for them as you remember and picture them. Notice how you hold them in your heart. And as you become aware of them and see them in your mind's eye, let yourself be aware of their measure of sorrows as in all human lives the sufferings they carry, some of which they may never have told anyone, the struggles or fears or hurts 
that are part of their life like all human lives. And as you see and sense their measure of suffering, their struggles or fears, notice how your heart opens naturally with caring, with well-wishing. And when they're having a really hard time how natural it is to extend comfort, to be touched by their pain, and to respond with compassion. What can I do to help? And now add to this natural response the inner whispering of some phrases of compassion. May you be held in compassion. Or may all your struggles and sorrows be held in compassion. May your pain and sorrows be eased. May your heart be at peace. May you be held in compassion. May your pain and sorrows be eased. May your heart be at peace. And now picture another person that you love. Have them stand next to this first one. And let yourself also sense their measure of struggles and sorrows. or their hurts and fears that they may never even give voice to, but that all human beings carry. And may you too be held in great compassion. May your pain and sorrow be eased. 
May your heart be at peace. And as you feel the tenderness toward these two loved ones, now imagine that they are gazing back at you with the same care. Imagine their eyes on you and they see your own struggles. They see your measure of tears and sorrows or hurts that you may never have given voice to. And they wish to you, may you too hold yourself in great compassion. May your pain and sorrows be eased. They wish for you, may your heart be at peace. And you take in their care and compassion, how much they care for you. And then you can even put your hand on your heart if you wish. And bring that care into yourself. May I hold myself with great compassion. And may my pain and sorrows be eased. My fears. And may I be at peace. May I live with a peaceful heart. And you allow a deep sense of caring to grow. May I hold myself with great compassion. May my pain and struggles be eased. May my heart be at peace. And know that this spirit of compassion in you can then be extended. And if we had time to continue this practice, You could picture other loved ones and friends, family and community, one at a time or in groups, and extend this invitation of compassion 
to all who suffer. Until you could even bring in the difficult people. To all those into the brotherhood and sisterhood of all beings. And let yourself feel how the beauty of every being brings you joy. And how the suffering of beings touches your heart, makes you weep. And this practice brings a tender-hearted connection with all creatures and all life. And staying with the compassion, let your eyes open. And just for a minute, gaze around with that care for all those seated around you, a sense of compassion for everybody's struggles, because they all have them, you know. And feel the natural well-wishing. May you hold yourself in compassion, every one of you. And may your struggles and sorrows be eased. Your heart be at peace. So this is one of a series of trainings that most of you are familiar with, of loving kindness, compassion, forgiveness, joy, gratitude. There's a whole series of these trainings. And what's important is that there are practice. So sometimes you do it and it opens your heart and you go, oh yeah, I want to live this way. It feels very good. Sometimes you do it and it feels kind of mechanical. Okay, it's a practice, I'm doing it, but I don't feel very much. Sometimes you do it and it brings up the opposite. I hate these people. I'm never going to feel compassion for them. Not after what they did, you know. It can bring up all kinds of things. It's a kind of purification that shows you what's in your heart. And what you don't want to do is use it to judge yourself. If you struggle with it or it feels mechanical or brings up the opposite, you want to hold just what so, all of that with compassion. Because the point isn't to perfect yourself. You've tried that for a while now. You go to the gym, you work out, you know, you go to therapy, you're on a good diet, you know, all that stuff. And it helps a little bit. I know it does. But only a little bit. Um, The point isn't to perfect yourself. It's to perfect your love. To be able to meet this world with a loving heart. And so instead of judging yourself, you let this spirit of compassion grow because you do it over and over again if you take it as a practice. And when you've done it 20 or 50 or 100 times, your way of holding yourself starts to change and your way of holding the suffering of others. And it begins to transform the way you move through the world. 